0: doing today. This is the Jeff Salgado Show with my co-host Mike Boyd. What's up, man? Not much. Here we are in cloudy Sacramento. It's a balmy 79 degrees. And uh, it is Saturday, May 16th. And we have a very special guest today. We have Black Dahlia from the Dwarves. Fuck yeah. Yeah, I'm very stoked. How have you been?
1: I've been good, man. You know, just chilling out, doing my thing, enjoying
0: the three-month-long staycation how about you pretty good um just same thing getting a lot of drawings done uh working my ass off yada 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 selling some merch we did some really good i did a Ooh. i did a post and uh, a bunch of people hit me up so i'm really excited i have a ton of stuff to mail out so it might be a couple of days where i can get the orders out i did not think it was going to be that big but i have like so much stuff i can't even carry it to the post are office. you cleaned out now or what what do you mean? Like,
1: are you cleaned out of merch now, or no? We
0: still, well, we we still have some CDs and right. a couple of skate decks left, but that's pretty much it. Everything else got just wiped out. I was like, this is awesome. So, fuck yeah! Thank you all who took the time to um, buy some merch. We really appreciate it, and you know, just keep your eyes open for when we have the new stuff, and we will have all new merchandise for the new record. So, other than that, we want to get to our interview. This is. Um, A band that I really, really loved. I've followed them for a very long time. A buddy of mine, my friend Brett, turned me on to this band um, back in the 90s, uh, The Dwarves. And they were different from what I was into, the early 90s, I think it was like really early. It might have been even 1990 when he turned me on to them. And I had to backtrack, because they'd been around for a little while, so I I backtracked some of the records and, and got into them really intensely. And I saw the first time I saw them was at the bottom of the hill. I think it was in '99, and or maybe sooner. I can't remember, or later than that. And it was with the was Zeke opening and the U.S. Bombs uh, were the very they were the openers, U.S. Bombs, so that was a really good show, and I got to see the Dwarves live. And then I followed them a bunch of times. But before I saw that show, I did see Black Dahlia at the Gilman, and he did a he was a solo show. It was a, his own stuff, and that was really cool. So. I've been a huge fan since then. This band is uh, very... They have really crazy lyrics.
1: I love their fucking lyrics, Really intense
0: subject (laughs) matters. And uh, we've got a chance to open for the Dwarves as well. That was actually later on. And uh, I couldn't have been more happy. Every time I've seen the band play, it's always fucking crazy at their shows. The crowd goes off, the antics, everything is just amazing. So uh, we're going to get to our interview. This is... Black Dahlia. How you doing, buddy? I feel good. I feel strong. <laughs> how do you, uh, how are you coping with this, uh, covid You know,
2: they say there's no business like co-business. Co-business. So, you yeah, know, I'm doing about the best as anybody else is. You know, I think everybody's going a little crazy now.
0: Oh hell yeah! It's awesome. We're gonna After see. After
2: this many days,
0: it's nuts. So uh, we're gonna run down your uh, career, if you don't mind. And uh, I, I remember the first time I ever saw you guys in a record store was with the uh, the Horror Stories album, and you guys were like kind of like a surfy kind of punk weird kind of thing, which was really cool. What were those days like?
2: Well. You know, the first big influence on the band was like '60s garage records and stuff like that, uh, rockabilly records and '60s records. So the early Dwarves records are, you know, a lot of Parfisa Oregon, a lot of kind of '60s garage covers, really obscure stuff, and you know, so you know, like tambourines and background vocals and stuff. You know, not not always what
0: people associate with the Dwarves. Right and then uh, when did you guys decide like it was like probably like the mid 80s right when you guys just started to go like full bore punk yeah I mean uh, you know we moved to San Francisco 86 I guess it was and you know what was really big then was sort of the beginnings
2: of the, the newer glam movement of the 80s you know what became kind of hair metal or whatever right and punk rock it was not terribly popular. Garage had no popularity at all. And um, so, you know, we were in kind of a strange condition. And uh, for a combination of factors, I, I was listening to a lot of Misfits records and Motorhead records, and I think uh, we just kind of... That was, that was, <coughs> we just kind of morphed into a much more punk rock, kind of a group than, uh, than Garage, you know, and uh, it was a strange time to morph into that because punk was not very popular then. Probably what we should have morphed into was like a glam band, you know, but that, we didn't come up with our glam thing till many years later when we did Penetration, you know, so, yeah, that's, a, that's one thing with the Dwarves, you know, we're always kind of doing something cool, but it's always at, at a weird time when nobody else is doing it, you know, so when I got into 60s records, nobody cared about that, I got into bluegrass at one point, made a bluegrass record before anybody cared about that. So it's always kind of, you know, uh, uh, it's always kind of a crapshoot.
0: You're ahead of the curve.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're always a little ahead of the curve, It's kind of what it comes down to.
0: For sure. Now, um, when did you guys release Free Cocaine? That was in 88, right? Uh,
2: well... Pain is a compilation okay. of stuff that came out, and so it's a. We made two EPs, right? We made 1986. We made the Horror Stories record, which is a very garage record, and then we made the Lick It single. So then, that's sort of the period when all our '60s oriented stuff comes from. And then it kind of morphs into the Dwarves that made Lucifer's Crank and Toolin' for a Warm Teabag, Bag, which are more kind of punk rock EP's. And then there's some other singles around that, and all, all that stuff winds up on the free Cocaine compilation, you know, which has like some Sympathy Singles and I um, think a track that was on Amphetamine Reptile, and just everything that was sort of before we went to Sub Pop. You know, so that's kind of the, the pre-Blood Guts Hardcore Dwarves, you know, which is a little more like noise rock. It's not not as fast tempo, and it's a little more straightforward rock and roll, but just kind of noisy, and and it sort of gets rid of all of the keyboards and background vocals and things that had been
0: earlier in the group, you know. Right, because the first time I ever heard you guys was during the, I think it was after Sugar Fix, a friend turned me on to you, so of course I went and backtracked your whole catalog. And uh, I remember the first time I heard Blood, Guts, and Pussy, and I was like, holy shit, (laughs) where where has this thing been? Because it was just full throttle. Every song was up in your face. I never heard the word fuck on an album more times than that. It was so awesome. (laughs) And and who are these people on the album cover? Because this is the coolest album cover ever, honestly. Yeah,
2: I mean, Blood, Guts was sort of the first moment when the dwarves became... A cultural thing you know what I mean the the previous records were cool but they didn't exactly uh, we hadn't quite reached what we were going to do you know in terms of kind of tweaking the public and um, (laughs) sorry hang on no problem Yeah, Blood, Blood Dubs is sort of the beginning of the modern Dwarves and and uh, you know I think what happened was by that time we'd been in California for a few years we'd played a few shows and what I was seeing was that there was like speed metal bands that were getting some attention and they were hard and and uh, still nobody was paying any attention to garage bands or anything and uh you know, we just were young and aggressive and we wanted to have a style that was aggressive. And so it just got more and more stripped down and faster and faster. And it just sort of became this, you know, uh, uh, attempt to sort of be the, you know, a faster version of the Ramones, like a Misfits or, a or a, uh, or a Motorhead kind of thing. And then, um, you know, I think also lyrically it really solidified on that one where there was just, uh, you know, no attempt to sugarcoat anything anymore. This is completely like, okay, you know, we're about sex, drugs, and violence, period, and that's what this music's about, and that's what this thing is about, and that's, you know. So that was kind of what happened there. And I, I never lost my interest in cool different kinds of music, but I think at that point I kind of realized that that was what I could do well. Right, You know what I mean? Absolutely. So it was like when I was 10 years old, I played the saxophone, you know. I just wasn't very good at it, you know. So, I mean, you you at some point you have to kind of figure out what you do and, and what you can do well. And, you know, one thing with the Dwarves is, you know, people will meet me and talk to me and then they'll wonder, like, how does that guy make that music, you know? <laughs> because it's, it, it's not very similar to most of the music. I would listen to or like or think about you know it just it's sort of what I realized I could do well you know
0: absolutely and you do it well and even in the punk world you guys definitely have an original sound which is really hard and difficult when you think about it because you can tell you guys have a lot of influences but at the same time I could pick out the dwarves in the sea of bands because you're I think your vocal style is really unique and um, now you guys, after that, you did a, a series of sub pop records, right? You did "Thank Heaven for Little Girls," and which is, I, I think, my one of my favorite songs from you guys is "Fuck 'Em All." That's like my anthem. I, I, I lived in the '90s to kind of do what you were singing about for a long time. It was really influential to me. It's great. And then,
2: um, well, you know, "Fuck 'Em All" is an interesting song, right? Because it's so such a blag sentiment, and everybody <laughs> just assumes that I wrote it.
3: But it was actually written by Saul Peter, the bass player. Yeah. And that's sort of always been a big thing in this band, is that really,
2: I was just surrounded by good songwriters. And a lot of people didn't really think of the Dwarves as a songwriter band, because it was hardcore, and we said fuck a lot, and a lot of times, (laughs) people just kind of can't reconcile certain things, you know? Right. Uh, So... People didn't realize really the pop influence or the songwriter influence of the dwarves, but there was a lot of it, you know. So, in a song like, and Fuck 'Em All is kind of interesting. I, I By that time, we'd made the Penetration record, which was sort of our glam record, and I wrote a song on it called L.A., and it had that riff in it. And I guess Salt Peter then took that riff and turned it into Fuck 'Em All, and Fuck 'Em All is lyrically so far superior to my song that, you know, I was just like, oh, fuck, we have to do this. I mean, <laughs> it was so great. So and, good. And, uh, you know, yeah. And Saul Peter, to this day, still writes great songs for us. I mean, on our last record, he did uh, Here's Looking at You, Kid. The one before that was Trailer Trash. So oh he's really a great songwriter. And, and you know that that's been one very lucky thing about being in this band was that there were always other guys who, who not only were good songwriters, but they knew how to write like me and be,
0: and and assume my identity as the singer kind of puts you out there. And
2: a lot of bands are, are not good at that, you know? Oh, right. But yeah, I mean, like, but I guess the point you were making, uh, well, I'm sorry, I don't know what
0: to, Well, I mean, okay, I like, on. for example, you said, here's looking at you, kid, the first time I heard that song, I spit out my drink, and I was just like, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> it was so yeah. over the top. But that's kind of the whole thing about the dwarves, if you guys have always been over the top, super gnarly, <laughs> super, like, offensive, and, and do not give two shits about what anybody thinks, and I think that's part of the appeal with it. And, um,
2: well, yeah, you know, my, my old friends at, at Fat Records were going to put out a single from 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 this last record just as they'd done with the previous one. But then uh, apparently the song, Here's Looking at You, Kid, really rubbed some people there the wrong way <laughs> because, you know, they got all offended and freaked out. And I think, you know, if you're in a punk band and you can freak out people from a punk label... <laughs> who've been around for a lot of years and probably think they've seen everything, you know. I I, I think that's a great thing, you know it's something to be proud of, you know, a lot of bands mellow out as as they go. And, you know, here's looking at you kid, I mean it's kinda like egging each other on. Like again, that Saul Peter wrote that, but the way he wrote it was more like um just kind of taking the phrase from Casablanca, here's looking at you kid and turning it into, you know, he's peeping on the girl next door. Right, And, and it's all Peter's version, you know, he's in love with the girl next door, and he's peeping on her, and it's here's looking at you, kid. And what I realized was that as long as it had the word kid in it, people were going to assume that it was about fucking kids anyway. <laughs> so so I said, well, look, if we're going to do a song called Here's Looking at You, kid, then I mean, it's got to be a kid. And otherwise, <laughs> it's not really... Funny anymore, and it hasn't really gone as far as we would go, you know. But yeah, you know, it's like you do a song like that, and it freaks some people out. On the other hand, that was the song that that they started playing on Little Steven's uh, garage, you know, uh, Little Steven's underground garage. They started playing "Here's Looking at You, Kid." Oh my god! Yeah, it's just a great poppy jam, and yeah. it's really funny. And so it's just interesting how you know one group of people gets very offended by something, and another group it, it just thinks it's funny. Um, you know, it's it's uh, that's really the sweet spot where rock and roll exists.
0: You yeah, know? and I, I think the, um, the sample in right before it is just the kicker. You're like, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: The, the the little girls talking. I mean, there's definitely stuff that pushes people's buttons. Like, sure. You know, and again, like, I I, I keep, you know, it's funny how many times you can sort of traverse the same material and have people misunderstand it over and over and over again. Like, um, there was a sample on the Dwarves record, Come Clean, you know, where the woman says, you know, uh, you know, you didn't call me, it's my birthday, I got all these great presents. You're so black, you know, and, and at the end she says, I turned 14 today. Right. And uh, people at the label sat me down and asked me, like, is this, is this serious, you know, <laughs> is this real? And I said, yes, it's real, because it was a real telephone right. message that had been left for me. I hadn't set it up. I didn't make that call up. The, the woman called me and did it. And 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 the, everybody was really concerned and shaking their heads and freaking out. And I let it go on for a while. And finally, I was like, "God, the message is real, but the girl isn't actually 14. She's like 30."
0: And you can, That's you, joke. can you can you obviously I mean? like, yeah, you you can, to, you can tell by her you, voice you it's you've a woman. Go with me here and try and get shit because if you don't, if you just
2: take shit on the most obvious level then the dwarves is always going to really freak you out and you're really going to be very disturbed by it, you know? <laughs> so it's sort of like, you know, it, it, it was funny. Like, it's funny how easy it is to push people's buttons with shit like that. Absolutely. You know, even, it, it, you know, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's interesting because, you know, the kind of people who commit those kind of crimes don't usually write songs about it or bring any attention to it. Exactly. I was always kind of freaked out by the fact that people would actually be scared of what's in the songs, or or think about you know, and it's like, dude, for five seconds, just think about. Well, <laughs> you really know, figure out, you know. You know what I'm saying, I, mean, I don't
0: know. What we're starting to see is that, like these, you know, like it's a song about that. It's funny because the, I don't think it's funny as far as the subject matter, but what we're starting to see in everyday news and everything, what we're starting to become is that. Pillars of society are behaving this way, and punk rockers are singing about it. You know what I mean? Like, it's like you're starting to hear about all these things that are coming out with these so called city and government officials and actresses, actors, and everything, whatever, all these like disgusting acts of behavior. And then you got these punk bands that have been singing out about it for years, mentors, and everything. And the bands are the ones that get attacked. I'm just like, you know, laughing, rolling my eyes. So, uh, another. Go ahead.
2: People never really (laughs) understood that about punk rock. You know, they did understand it about hip-hop music. Right. So so when hip-hop music first came out, there was the standard complaints. There was too much profanity. There was too much objectification of women. But then came this newer idea that it was like, oh, you know, this is the ghetto CNN. You know, we're talking about the real stuff that's really going on that people can't handle, you know. And so people were able to kind of Compartmentalize hip hop more and say, "Oh, well, okay." On this side, there's some misogyny and violence, but on this side, it's like it's 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 like a report card from the ghetto. <laughs> With punk rock, people never really bothered doing that, and they didn't even see the influence. I mean, think of the difference between early hip hop records, you know, where it's all like the fat boys and a, a big, you know, a big medallion, and you know, you're singing about, you know or you're you're, you're rapping about real basic shit, and then it kind of morphs into gangster, right? I mean, that gangster thing, a lot of the imagery and all that came from punk rock. It came from heavy metal. It came from punk rock. All of a sudden, in hip-hop, you're seeing people talking about death and skulls and imagery, black clothing and black things and all this stuff. Whereas when you look at The beginning of hip-hop, it's all, like, African clothing and and shit. You know what I mean? Like, it's a different thing. Like, like, punk punk rock did have an influence on the culture and on people, and it did, you know, kind of report the the sickness of our society and where things were going, you know. But but people didn't really catch that much. Yeah, That wasn't really, that hasn't really come to be something that people, most people recognize. But I see it. You know, I, I was listening to that first wave of popular hip-hop records in the mid-'80s. The best. And hip-hop had been around for a little while by that point, but it, it really became a commercially viable thing in the mid-'80s. And as soon as that imagery came in, it was like, well, shit, these guys are being punk rock, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it... So,
0: you know. Well, okay, one more question about a song. I, I Is there a backstory to the song Reputation? Because that's probably my favorite song that you guys have in your entire catalog
2: yeah reputation's a weird one i mean the riff is so similar to anybody out there and it's on the same record as anybody out there so it really just got forgotten and ignored by us we never really did it much live or anything we would just do anybody out there right because you'd kind of get that same sort of riff and it was a little catchier and it was more for the crowd um, but Bad Reputation was just sort of a similar rip. I think he, who cannot be named, came up with it. And, yeah, I was just sort of saying about, in general, this this huge reputation that we had garnered with no management, no promotion, no publicist. You know what I mean? Like, it was very, it was, like, had had anybody from the music industry thought, like, "Wow, these guys have built up this reputation. Like, we could make some money off this." They probably could have. Right. I saw it happen with different bands. You know, you'd see something like, like, you know, Marilyn Manson. who was like, "Well, this was the band everybody loves to hate. They talk about Satan and death and sex and drugs." You know, and it was like, "What do you think we've been doing?" You know, <laughs> but, it, but, but but like, but they had Interscope and a publicist and all these things behind them and big management and Trent Reznor and so. It, it becomes viable, you know. So a lot, a lot of times, when you do this stuff, uh, just the context that you do it in, uh, um, you know, make, make, makes a lot of difference. But wait, I kind of, I kind of lost the question. Well, what, what, what was the initial? Of-
0: well, just like the, the the song "Reputation" and like what the backstory oh, right. is on that. So,
2: so reputation. Um, it alludes to something that happened in Richmond, Virginia many years ago when we were <laughs> basically like we, we had played a show there and I guess, you know, kind of scuffled with some people there and, and forgot about it. And then we came back the next year and they had like set up this whole elaborate thing where they were going to get us, you know, oh, shit. so and I guess the, the club was sort of tied in with it because. You know, we started playing then like the lights went off and the sound went off and we got rushed you know oh, wow. so it was almost like everybody at the club was sort of in on it with them and and it just turned into a brawl you know but I think what they forgot was you know when you rush a stage we're holding big objects <laughs> you, you know? so if, you, if you rush a stage with the dwarves on it you're gonna get clobbered and, and that's what happened and people didn't really expect it and then like oh, all these people had to go to the hospital and it got really weird and and you know we were <laughs> the, the uh, later on that night we were staying at Guar's house because they lived in Richmond and we were staying with I guess with their managers at the place and um, you know the car peels around the corner and we hear these windows smash and all this shit happens. And we run outside, and there's these guys laughing and giving us a finger and going, fuck you, we got your van, and blah, blah. But what they didn't realize was they actually got Guar's van. Oh. Our van was around the corner. <laughs> so they had come and destroyed this thing, you know, it destroyed this van and slashed the tires and smashed the windows, and they were just fucking up their local friends, you know oh, what Oh, man. man. But, but, of course, we just kind of looked at the guys from Guar, the manager, and were just kind of, well, we'll be going now, you know, so, four in the morning, we're driving out of Richmond, you know, wondering where we're going to stay, nobody's got the money for a hotel, and we're just like, what the fuck, you know, I think, I think we I creep into New York early, try stay at a friend's place, you know, one of those New York deals where you and your whole band, there's five people in somebody's living room, you know, kind of shit. But um, yeah, so Bad Reputation was just kind of about all of this shit that we got into, specifically the uh staying in richmond and just in general you know sort of saying, hey you know we've got this reputation and we we earned it the old fashioned way you know <laughs> we get it through, through a publicist. you know we got it cuz so you guys not uh, able to
0: and, and speaking of, of um, anybody out there uh you guys had a video for that that came out on a sub pop vhs compilation that i saw and that was the first time i ever saw uh, he who cannot be named um, questionably clothed, I guess, or not clothed. Let's just say. <laughs> and that was on a video, and I remember both you guys were just butt naked. And then I, when I saw you guys live, I was like, "Oh my god, it's real." <laughs> and uh, he who cannot be named. Yeah. Where'd you find him from?
2: Well, um, he <coughs> came from Wisconsin. We were from Illinois. Gotcha. And uh, I met him through a mutual friend, at, who, somebody who'd gone to school with him. He was a little older than us. I mean, he was, uh, when, when we met him, we were almost finished with high school. He was almost finished with college. Um, and he, uh, he had, I was really into 60s garage, and he had an old Pisa organ. So nice. That was really what put him in the group, and I didn't even realize what a good player he was, or songwriter, or all the stuff that he could do. That all that all just sort of came about later, you know. But he was the keyboard player; I was the guitar player. Gotcha. And then, you know, once we moved to California and we kind of got more and more punk rock, I just, I, I, I always felt my guitar playing was limited; that I was not a good player, and that I didn't like holding it, um, and so who became the guitar player and we really stripped down. And again, that, so the keyboards kind of disappeared and, you know, things kind of went that way. And then his, you know, his outfit, it was just sort of like, I, I don't know. I think it's is something that Italian people do, but I'm like Italian and I always give people names, you know? <laughs> and, 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 and like I gave him so many names that after a while it was like, you know, he's, He's he who cannot be named, you know, which was, which of course came from a Sam Hain record, you know. And I I was into the Misfits.
0: Oh, was Sam it? Which which and, which record was and, that? And
2: this, the first one, Initium.
0: Oh, gotcha. You know, okay, you know, I didn't even think record. about that. Well, yeah.
2: Same with the cover of Blood, Guts, and Pussy. Right? If you yeah. look at the cover of Blood, Guts, and Pussy. It's the same as the cover of Initium, you know. But instead of a bunch of hairy guys with blood on them, I did chicks, you know, because that's that's my style, you know.
0: Absolutely.
2: Who's but the there, yeah? Who's the dwarf? There's a huge Misfits influence in the dwarves, absolutely, and you know, and and so he whose name even is kind of tied in with that, that's but awesome. he his style, you know, he he was his idea to play with in a mask, and so th- that the whole idea kind of gels, you know.
0: Is that, is that Dwarf, the same one that, that's on Blood, Guts, and Pussies on the other album covers, Come Clean and um, Dwarf Must Die yeah. and all those other ones? That's- yeah,
2: his name was Bobby Faust. And he... So I had a friend in New York who was a filmmaker, a guy named uh, Chris Wetzel. And uh, I say was because, unfortunately, we, we lost him young. Oh, but um, he was a great uh, guy, and, and he advertised in the Village Voice, he wanted to make a movie. I, I wrote a movie called Parts Deco and he was and he decided to film it. And so he put an ad in the Village Voice in New York that said, you know, wanted 13 naked girls and a dwarf. And so one day, you know, we'd come home from the bar and everybody's fucked up and <laughs> there's a message on the answering machine and It's like, uh, hello? my name is Bobby Faust, and I am indeed a dwarf, <laughs> and, and, and from there, you know, we sort of, uh, developed the, the, uh, the concept, you know, it was, uh, Michael Levine was the photographer, and I said, you know, okay, what, you know, take, I want an art shot, I don't want like a cheesecake nudie shot, I want like an art shot, but I want it to be a You know, it's this little dwarf guy and then these women sort of towering over him. You know, that was the humor of it to me, you know. And again, that's why I laugh, because when people saw Blood Guts and Pussy, a lot of people thought that it was misogynist. And to me, it doesn't look misogynist at all. It It looks like the big, powerful women have just been through this huge battle. And there's this sort of tiny little man looking after them so to me it wasn't misogynist at all but you know again like people's buttons are very easily pushed by basic things so it's like you know nudity misogynist and that was it you
0: know right and you you guys have really um uh, been everywhere i mean uh i remember there was a you had a bunch of lineup changes and you guys i think before had nick oliveri in your band too right or did he come in right before dwarves die? I can't remember exactly when he came in.
2: Um, so Nick came into the band uh, after Sugar Fix. Okay. Before he, uh, that's what I thought. My solo record, which was Flag Dahlia Venus with Arms. Right. The next Dwarves record that came out that had Nick on it was Young and Good Looking, and then Come Clean. Those those were the ones when he was full on in the Dwarves and, and living with us. playing with us but you know Nick has been Nick has played bass on every Dwarves record since Young and Good Looking oh okay there's been some there's been some Salt Peter but it's always been Nick whether he was in another band or not he always came back and 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 played but the period when he was sort of actively playing with us was about 93 uh, maybe 92 93 to about 99 2000, something like that.
0: And uh, he, when did he, did he leave the band to go to Queens of the Stone Age?
2: Yeah. Um, and and then he returned um, but of course you know, he does all kinds of things. Like he does Mondo Generator and he did he did Blast for a while and he right. did a thing called Blood Clot, which was guys from Agnostic Front and different things. So Nick Nick plays know i've sort of made it my job to produce nick's work because a lot of times when nick makes records you know he he's so great but he's one of those guys who you know he writes and he sings and he plays and so he just wants to finish it you know what i mean and i'm i'm more like a record producer so i get in there and really try and make a record so i really you know songs that have appeared on Dwarves Records, I really tried to produce and really give him the benefit of like, this is what it sounds like when you really work on a Nick song and you really get those performances right and you really get that vocal right and you really take the time and you really get the mix right, you know, because a lot of times Nick will make a whole record in three days or whatever, you know. Right. There's no one right way to do this stuff. I mean, Nick does it the way Nick does it, but when when you know his role in the Dwarves was definitely you know he played a lot of bass, he sang and he wrote, um, and and uh, you know I sort of took care of the production and that you know.
0: Now I remember when he came back to the Dwarves as far as his title from being in Queens of the Stone Age, and you put out the song Massacre from The Dwarves Must Die, and you mentioned Queens of the Stone Age on there. It was pretty hilarious.
2: Yeah, right, and that was part of the vibe that was going on around then. He'd just been thrown out of that, and so he comes back to his friend, you know, he sort of, he was deep with them when he was with them, and then he was, you know, then he was with us, he was back with us, you know, but it was kind of, that was sort of the vibe of the moment, you know, but, but sure. um you know, he, he uh, uh, Nick was always a great friend and he always tried to rep for the dwarves, you know. And, right. But, you know, when people get involved with big major label things and a lot of management and sort of asshole people, then things blow apart and things go in all kinds of direction. Uh, you know, but yeah, when he came down here, it was probably, um, he, he pretty consistently played with me from about, 20, maybe 2010 onward but like I say he played, he played on all the records and he definitely this, there was sort of a period there maybe between 2005 and 2010 when there was just a lot of swapping out of drummers for bass players you know it wasn't it was that there were like two or three guys who, who did it and they all had other gigs to do and so people would kind of come in and out while they were doing it you know. Um, but when it came to making records, it's always Nick on there, and and sometimes Salt Peter, but generally really Nick on bass. He's so good.
0: You guys had a, you guys had a, a yeah he's sick. But you guys had a pretty good shout out when uh, the documentary of Kurt and Courtney. I saw that, and I was like, whoa, dwarves. And you guys remember <laughs> playing with Nirvana a lot back in the day.
2: Well, okay, so that, that kind of goes to show you how random rock and roll is, right? Because we just went up to Seattle that weekend to play a show, and right. it was under the Black Dahlia name. The doors were broken up, and, you know, it was an okay show, and some people showed up, but it was not some enormous cultural event. Just by sheer random luck, they were filming the Kurt and Courtney movie. Uh-huh. and the guy was kind of going around town in a haphazard way sort of asking do you know Kurt, do you know Kurt, did you know Courtney <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so he just happened to be filming at that place that night he's like hey did, did you guys have any connection with this with Nirvana and I'm like we played with Nirvana I knew Kurt, I knew Courtney and I you know we we, um, we uh, uh, yeah you know and, and we were on so <laughs> so yes you know there's a connection here so then he did an interview with me, but the interview doesn't really, I don't think the interview really appears in the movie at all. They just they just have some footage of us and they talk about us as this very violent band. <laughs> um, and, they—and—and and, you know, like it was great. I mean, I, and it's a great moment because you actually see Nick being violent. Yeah, He like swings on somebody or something, you know. And the band was kind of protective of me at that point because I'd had knee surgery. And so people got near me Nick would get pretty preach <laughs> out Yeah. So, you know, it, it was, uh, and I think what happened there, I mean, this asshole, you know, there was that, there's always that kind of guy who like drive by or run by the stage like circle in a circle pit and will just hook you for your leg. Right. And this guy kept doing that to me and I'd just been operated on. So Nick just went up and hammered him. Nice. Uh, and the guy just smacked him with a, with a, yeah,
0: but uh... as you should have. <laughs> yeah, good <laughs> gamer. That's great. And then uh, um, so going down your records, I can't remember where we left off. Oh, it was okay after um, the one with the skateboard and the girl with the mask. And uh, that was kind of like your comeback record, right? Because you guys you were doing this solo project for a little while, and then you came back and did the Dwarves are young and good looking. And that album was like I thought, just your full blown comeback record, which was really sick, all top to bottom, all the
2: way. Our our full blown
0: what record? Comeback record, because you guys had been out for a little while.
2: And that was, you know, it really, it really was that. Yeah, it really did become the comeback record. Uh, Pop punk got very popular during that period. And remember, I mean, when we were at Sub Pop, we were like the token punk band at Sub Pop. Everybody else was kind of slow and grungy. Right. And that was kind of considered the movement, so people didn't see much commercially viable with the Dwarves. But then within a couple of years, you had Green Day and Offspring making stuff that was more up to our tempo and more written in our style. I mean, obviously there are differences, but it was suddenly people kind of saw, oh, there's this sort of poppy form of punk rock, and you can do that. Um, and so I said, well, fuck, this is probably a good time to make a Dwarves record, but we didn't have a record deal. And so I just bar- begged, borrowed, and stealed for that one. And we made uh, Young and Good Looking. And I said, I'm just putting everything I got into this. Yep. And, uh, you know, we wrote a bunch of great songs. I mean, uh, then that, that was really the record that's largely written by me. There's very little input from anybody. I got very territorial at that point because the band had broken up and I was like, okay, if I'm making a comeback, this needs to be, you know, there's got to be something on here that's fucking just undeniable. And so you got One Time Only and Everybody's Girl and You Gotta Burn and We Must Have Blood and and, and a lot of songs that have come to be sort of dwarves standards. And and there's input from other guys. There's co-writes on there, but... It's, it's a, a lot, really, coming from me. Like I think every single lyric on that record was written by me, and, and almost all the music. So it was very like that. I, that was a real make or break kind of record, and it wound up making it. You know, we got the deal with Epitaph, and they took us on, and we had, we had never been very popular in California, um, and really being on Epitaph really brought up our profile in California.
0: You guys, uh, we had come from Illinois. I
2: moved to California, and then got popular in Seattle. So we didn't, we never really broke through here until, until you know those records on Epitaph, when people said, "Oh shit, these guys can do our style as well."
0: You know. Now was that was that record released first in a small run, and then re-released on Epitaph?
2: Yeah, it was originally. I mean, my search for record labels was epic. <laughs> it's hard. And basically, like, the only people I could get to put it out, I mean, I asked everybody. I asked, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, I, I, I asked um, the uh, Dexter from The Offspring. He had a label called Nitro. He didn't want to do it. I asked Tim from Rancid. He didn't want to do it. I asked Mike from, Fat and He didn't want to do it. I, I you know, I, I went to every punk label a couple times, and, and nobody wanted to fuck with me. And it was only finally after the third time I went to Epitaph when the record was done, and it was actually going to be released on Recess Records, right? Um, which was, you know, they were buddies of mine, and I had produced FYP, and so he had a label, and I, and to me, it was a real. I mean, I loved Todd and I loved his band. I thought his label was great, but I wanted I really thought my record was like a hit, you could go somewhere. So I was kinda of disappointed, but it was like okay, if this is the only guy that's gonna put it out, let's let's do it. So he actually did it in conjunction with a label called Theologian. So it came out through Recess and Theologian. And then Epitaph finally picked it up after it actually came Because right. you know? I, I so I, that put me in a good Oh, I'm sorry.
0: Oh um, no, it's fine. I have I have the recess theologian copy on cd that was the one i bought because i was waiting for it i was like yes and then it got re-released on epitaph and i was like oh (laughs) so as a collector i was really excited you have
2: have the cooler you have the original version right i think it's a different red as well yeah and it's just a little different that one and so you you got the cool one you got the original one and then epitaph uh came in and and uh they put the song Everybody's Girl sort of highly placed on a punk comp. Right. So that really opened up a lot of people to that song and uh, you know, sort of made people recognize the dwarves for something other than just uh, you know, they'll cut your head off, they scream fuck a lot. You know, all of a sudden people started saying words like production and songwriting in the same sentence as the dwarves, wow. which had never happened up <laughs> until that of why it happened was, you know, I I was lucky enough to meet a guy named Eric Valentine. Uh, and so, you know, his, he turned out to be a very big, you know, money-making top ten producer. But mm-hmm. at the time that I found him, he wasn't. So, you know, he was just my engineer. I was the producer of the record. But as I sat there with him and worked for a while, I realized, oh, this guy's a fucking genius. And I started deferring to him more and more about, you know, what was in time, what was in tune, what was working, what wasn't. And then, he, you know, his mix was amazing, you know. So it was like, you know, that, I, it, that was one of the luckiest things that ever happened was after the Dwarves broke up, I wound up in a studio with Eric Valentine. Yep. That was a very fortunate thing because it wasn't like some label put me in with him. <laughs> you know, I, I just found him through my friend Harper. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, that was lucky and he's gone on to be a great friend and a great success in, in the music industry and been a great, you know, and so, and, and, and I, and that's why, you know, when it comes to records, I mean, I just put the Dwarves records, especially the last 20, 25 years on a whole different level than other punk bands, because they, they just, you know, not, not only are they kind of weaker and trying to be poppier and not succeeding, but then they also don't have the, our sort of pop chops, you know, being able to write or produce something that sounds pop. So you get all these, you know, there's all these punk bands that are more popular than The Dwarves and more well known and sold more records and sell more t shirts and whatever. And as far as I'm concerned, it's like, well, they're not punk because they're so soft and weak. But they're not pop either, because they just sound kind of trashy and small right. on a record. So it's like, well, okay, you know, it, 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 you know. But again, there's gold in the middle of the road, so I understand why bands like that succeed, right? Because the Dwarves, it's too clean for some people that get into punk, but and then it's too nasty for some people that get into punk, you know. So they like something that's like, oh, it's a little softer, a little easier to handle. And, uh, you know, but I can feel like it's a little garagey and nasty. And so, okay, here's my punk band. And, they, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to mention any names, but there's just a lot of punk bands that fall into that category. And the Dwarves just, we're more pop than than the pop bands, and we're more punk than the punk bands.
0: You know, when when the 90s really hit and you guys started playing a lot, you know, um, I was, the late 90s, I was really excited because uh, I couldn't, personally, I couldn't get into a lot of the big punk bands because they just... They sounded so watered down and polished, it was too much. But you guys, personally, for me, it was, along the lines of you guys, Zeke, and like the Super Suckers saved punk rock for me because I was like, this is, it's coming from a very raw and genuine spot. It was still edgy. It wasn't trying to fit into the Epitaph, at Records mold, which was really exciting. And that's, that's one of the things I really appreciated about you guys. And then once 2000 hit, you guys dropped Come Clean. And that was a really kind of a, departure from what you normally did it just sounded a little bit more poppy look not as brutal as the last record
2: yeah i mean i think that's a fair estimate of it there's still a couple hardcore things on there and of course that's the debut of nick singing on dwarves records oh okay and he sings ruined city rapist which gotcha. is arguably the happiest Dwarves song ever so again, that that's the thing with the dwarfs. Even even when you say about the record overall, oh, okay, this is cleaner and more produced and you'd be right. There's also still even nastier shit on mm-hmm. there, right? So it's very you know, it's it, it, it's very hard to draw a beat on this band. But yeah, right. that was the next record and uh, my, favorite that, a, my
0: favorite song is my favorite song's Accelerator. That's the baddest ass song on that record. It's so sick.
2: Yeah, Accelerator, and that's that's one of mine. And it's pretty uh, pretty uh, clearly straightforward, kind of rockabilly-ish tune. Fuck yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, for me, it's it's how it's done on that record. That's why I opened the record with it. I, I thought that was a pretty classy example of like the Ramones' Side of the Dwarves. Fuck yeah. And, and, uh, and that, but you know, then there's Over You, which is sort of like what you were starting to hear on the radio at that point was stuff like Lint Biscuit and Stingings and stuff like that. And I said, (laughs) well, we can do a song with a double bass in it, with a double kick drum, why not, you know? So again, get, so that was when another interesting thing started happening with the Doors, right? Like, we're telling you, looking, for the first time I started hearing, well, you guys got cleaner or you sold out or whatever. And then there was even more of that with with Come Clean because it was like, you guys did a speed metal song, you know, so you must be commercial now or whatever. You know, not really understanding that. <laughs> it's one thing if you completely change genres and make a whole record like something. right? But if you just do one version of something on a record and then quickly go to something else, that's about the least commercial thing you can do. Yep. Because everybody that loves what you already do is going to hate that. Uh, and, then, and that right. really reaches the apex with the next one, Must Die. It's like it literally changes genres every 60 seconds. It's got sort of a surf intro that it starts with Bleed On. Then it goes to kind of an industrial pop thing with F.E.F.U. Totally. Then it goes to pop punk with Salt Lake City. Brings in, that's the first appearance of Dexter Holland on the Dwarves record. And then it goes to Dominator, which is arguably the most kind of straightforward, hardcore Dwarves punk song. Mm-hmm. And then it goes to fucking, like, you know, then I bring in Sam Quinn to rap on the on, uh, on, um, you know, Demented, and then and, then, and then it's like, I mean, that the record, one of the records I'm most proud of that I think is most underrated by the tours is Must Die, yeah. because it really has every genre and so many guests. There's everything. I mean, San Quinn lived on my flock in San Francisco. That's how I knew him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a real hip-hop connection, no bullshit. We weren't buddies. We weren't hip-hop guys. I wasn't some wigger guy. I actually knew him from on the street, you know? <laughs> and then, like, and then, like, fucking, you know, <clears throat> Nash from Urge Overkill is on that record singing. You know, I mean, he's he, he just got one of the most iconic voices of the whole grunge Europe. You know, and then, and then there's, then there's like, I mean, it's just, that was the first time I did a co-write with Eric Valentine. Because awesome. he made up F E F U. That was his song. I didn't like that. he, he wrote the music, and then I came in and wrote the vocal melody and the lyrics.
0: Dude, that song—that like, song is the heaviest song on the record. It's fucking gnarly. I remember when I first heard it, I was like, "Wow!" Like it was awesome. I was blown away by it because it was so not dwarvish, <laughs> but it was great.
2: Right, and because and it doesn't come from there. It's a, it's a program beat by a producer. Right, but you know, a couple of the dwarves go back and play on it just so it sonically sounded something like that mm-hmm. but yeah that's, I mean that's part of what makes that such an interesting record it changes genres all the time there's a million different guests. there's four or maybe even five different dwarves drummers on it that's the record where Josh Freeze first comes in
0: nice very cool
2: and, and he and he wrote uh, the music to Fuck the Bitch and Go so that was the first co-write I did with him <laughs> So, like, more and more, I started to view myself as, like, I just basically said, yes, I understand that the music industry has written me off and doesn't think that I'm talented or that my band is important, but I'm going to act like I'm already a big platinum guy, and I'm going to deal with the best people that I know, and I'm going to deal with the best producers I know and the best players I know, and I'm going to get all the best guys to make the George records, but they're going to stay punk records. Right. Big and that, time. and that's what we did, you know, like that's what the next twenty years was, you know, the next that was basically what it what it was. It was like I'm not even gonna pretend that anybody in punk rock gets me anymore. It's just punk rock is where I can play a festival, you know. Punk rock is where I some people will recognize me. Right. So that's the place that I go back to in terms of commercially. But in terms of making records, you know, the dwarves are just not, they're just not even part of that world.
0: Really. Nope, not at all. I, you know, the, the, that album is, it's a really powerful album. And you're right, each song has its own vibe. And my personal favorite on that one is Runaway number two, because the lyrics on that just had me on the floor. I mean, the first time I heard it, <laughs> I had it cranked. My girlfriend at the time heard it and was like, What are you listening to? <laughs> the lyrics on so That, that song.
2: Is- <laughs> who cannot be named really gets the credit for that <laughs> because not only did, not only did he write the music but he also wrote most of the lyrics in that song so it just goes to prove what a strong <laughs> songwriter and lyricist he who has always been that's great but what I did on that song was strip it get rid of the electric guitar basically and just strip it down and make it an acoustic thing, which yeah. the Dwarves had never done, and which I think really lent itself to the music and lyrics of that song in a way that if it would have been done the way he who wrote it and probably the way he does it with his solo act, it's more of a straightforward kind of a board song. It wouldn't have had the same impact. Right. So the impact that something like that has that's where production really comes in and makes a huge difference you know it it opens up the record at that point it introduces a new style but the kernel of that song is all he used, lyrically and musically you know?
0: dude it's so good and so after that you guys uh did the dwarves are born again right what was your take on that record? I like it. It's really good. It's solid all the way through.
2: Well, a lot of times I see the records in sort of conceptual pairs, and to me, that's the pair with Must Die. So it's sort of like Born Again and Must Die go together. Right. Born Again introduced with garage material into the Doors again, which uh-huh. some, some of which was recorded during Must Die, but didn't make it to the record. Okay. So. Like things like um, bang up or um, uh, Z zero uh, are more kind of returning to the garage rock roots of the doors or the kind of cartoon bubblegum roots of the doors, you know that, that kind of vibe. So it's, so it's introducing yet another genre, sort of the only one that doesn't come, really come up on must die. And and it and and basically like that record is with, with most die, it's sort of like there's a lot of strong parts there, but it's stronger than the sum of its parts. Right. <clears throat> somehow with Born Again, it's like the opposite. There's a lot of strong parts there, but it's somehow weaker than the sum of its parts. I, I don't know why. But like remember Born Again has like one of the
0: best songs I ever wrote, which is Let's Just Get High and Funks and Sluts Absolutely. Which is like so much The Dwarf,
2: and, and so, like so defining of that band, you know, and, and like, but it's also got like 15 Minutes, which is a techno song, you know, the good poppy songs on, on, uh, the good poppy songs on Born Again are mostly written by who number one, and uh, and uh, Happy, Happy Suicide. Those are huge songs so he kind of supplied a lot of the poppier stuff on that one, but I just produced it pop. Again, you can hear him do his versions of those songs, and when he does it himself, it's not as pop, you know? But Born Again is like, you know, I would challenge anybody. That's a really strong record. It's just somehow it doesn't sound like a unified record. In the same way, it, 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 it's a very sprawling thing. If you, if you listen to it as a continuum with Must Die, it kind of makes more sense, you know?
0: Right. Now, um, The Dwarves Invented Rock and Roll was your first, sadly, album cover without Mr. Faust.
2: <laughs> yeah. He's, he's no longer with us. That's Bobby that sucks. I was bummed. The, the Great Dwarf. He was, I remember him coming to me when we made <laughs> the, the Must Die cover, which was the last one. Or no, yeah, that's right, it was it was Born Again. You're right, that was the last one with him. And he came to me and he kinda, you know, like, flagged, you know, we've known each other for a long time and you know, I feel like we we really pioneered something together and you know, man, what's, what's going on? You know, it's been a long time, I haven't talked to you. <laughs> and I just kinda looked at him and said, shut the fuck up and take your clothes off. (laughs) You know, because that was kind of, uh, I I really appreciated that he he loved me and he knew that I loved him and that he meant a lot to me. But, you know, the essence of our conversation was, look, man, I'm going to let you scamper around with a bunch of naked chicks, you know? Right. So just fucking, you know, take it for what it's worth, you know? and so that kind of the rock and roll side of it, he was, he was a great guy, Bobby Fouts, and he, you know, he had a son who uh, introduced himself to me afterward, I, I, you know, after Bobby had passed away, and, and, uh, yeah, these people are much more important than you think at the time, you right. know, Bobby, Absolutely. just the way he looked and what he represented winds up really re- representing my band, I didn't know him well, you know, I, I bought a little reefer off of him. He lived in Brooklyn. He had a big dog named Boogie, you know, so I'd go over there and he, I just always remember him going, Boogie, Boogie, you know, it's not, it almost sounded like a remix of something, you know, the sound his voice coming up. He had a great voice, you know, and he, and, um, but yeah, anyway, so, uh we- that, that was when uh, I stopped putting tours on the covers because when it wasn't Bobby anymore, it just kind of didn't mean the, thing to me anymore. Uh, I did get Selene Luna who's who is a cool dwarf dwarf woman uh, from Los Angeles. I got her on a on a cover um, of how to win friends and influence people. And chronologically that's sort of we left that one out. But um,
0: well, that was like a that was like a compilation, one, right?
2: Well it's not really a compilation because it's it's a re recording. Oh gotcha. Okay. We re recorded a bunch of dwarf records. So the versions are different. Some people really like those versions better. Um, there's a lot of these sub stuff that's on there. Um, yeah, that that's kind of a that's kind of a live in the studio sort of a recording. And and that was just sort of a uh, after having made Come Clean, I said, you know, I have some older songs and I'd like to be able to put them in movies and stuff, but I don't own them. You know, maybe. I'll just re-record them. And so that's what How to Win Friends is. But there's one song on there that isn't on anything else, which is called Follow Me. And mm-hmm. I really like that. I think it's a good dwarf song. It's pretty uh, complete. You know, there's different kinds of dwarf songs, but some of them are sort of short, hardcore things. And then some of them are more sort of complete, the bridges, and and, and are as close to pop, full-on-pop structure as we get.
0: Follow Me is kind of one of those
2: songs. Yeah, we we also, yeah, so,
0: so, we also missed sorry. in 2005. You released a Greedy Boot One, and that's the Greedy Records, and that's a like it's got a bunch of different ones as well, like Masker, Are You Ready? Oh, big, right. And that's like you got Big Balls, which you actually had on a compilation as well, right? ac cover.
2: <laughs> there's there's two different versions of Big Balls okay two different comps, and, and one of them is really not good. I can't remember which one. But like one, of, one of them has a good comp version of it. Um, yeah, that's right. So we, kept, We you know, there are a couple Dwarves cover songs. I was never big on doing a lot of covers. But I did, you know, we did a cover. Big Balls by ACDC. We kind of did a hybrid hardcore and hip-hop version. So that was kind of interesting. And uh, but what's really interesting on the Greedy Boots are things like, you know... Um, I produced a female group, you know, doing one time only. That, that was kind of cool. They were called The Holograms. Or, or there was like, uh, uh, I, I was friends with some rappers and DJs from around here, Luke Sick and uh, Sacred Hoop and DJ Mars, and so they made a couple tracks that I took part in. So that greedy bootleg has some weird odds and ends. stuff, And one of the things that it kind of introduces is me playing acoustic guitar and just singing kind of comedy songs. So there's some songs, there's a song about Jihad on there, a song, (laughs) there's just some kind of funny things that I did. um, And that sort of, to keep things current, that's kind of what I'm working on now, although it is an acoustic guitar, but there's finally going to be a Dwarf, or a a Black Dahlia solo record that's going to come out next year that I'm working on now. Nice. It's going to be more kind of comedy, funny stuff, but the songs will not be acoustic guitar for the most part, although that's how I wrote them. But they'll be produced still kind of like my solo song Metro Sexual where there's keyboards and different things, and it. it doesn't it doesn't really sound like the Dwarves or like me on an acoustic. It's just something different. So that that's kind of what this will be. You know, different genres of music and and uh, but more comedy, funny kind of that the the Black Dahlia side of things, not so much the Dwarves. Hardcore side of things you
0: know. Yeah I thought it was pretty cool That on your first solo record uh, You put a new version Of Crucifix is now Crucifixion is now on uh, The Dwarves are young and good looking That was really cool That you guys You pulled that song out And put it on the Dwarves record Because I had saw you Do a solo show At um, the Gilman In Berkeley, And that was pretty cool And I got your That was where I bought Your solo record The first time And then I saw it On the new record I was like rad because that's a great song.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, the solo record kind of fell through the cracks, but thanks. solo record has some good songs on it. Let's yep. Take a Ride, uh, No Rest for the Wicked. Right. So, yeah, that kind of gets lost, and it, it gets resurrected... Well, ultimately young good looking was really the, the fulcrum of that whole period and that's the period that's the record people remember. Right. So I put out a record called The Doors Are Younger and Even Better Looking that has a lot of the side stuff that was happening during that period. And that has the whole doors or the whole Black Dahlia common. Oh nice. Um, so you did I nice. think I think I think it leaves that version of 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 uh crucifixion, crucifixion is now off of it. So right. That's the one thing that isn't on. On the uh, George are younger and even better looking. But if you want the black solo album, you can get it on there, or you can just go out and find it because because you'll get that different version of right. of *Crucifixion* now, and, and uh, it's neat to have. But it's, uh, um, you know, young and looking was sort of the big deal of that. Mm. So now with these later records, the, the thing that we missed that came in between. Uh, in between Must Die and its conceptual pair Born Again I made a record with a female vocalist called Candy Now and that was kind of me doing all different genres but of sort of Americana music you know country songs acoustic songs uh, some 60's garage kind of songs based off loops songs that are a little Latin-y whatever and that's what that first Candy Now release is gotcha. and, and uh Basically, I hooked up with a group, a really good poppy international group from Oakland called Persephone's Bees. And and basically, like, the guitar player in that band, Tom Ayers, is a multi-instrumentalist, very brilliant guy. And he went and actually arranged those songs that I'd written. And there was one called Take Me to Your Leader that I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have your wife sing this Angelina is her name. She plays keyboards and sings and she's Russian. And I thought, take me to your leader. If she sings with a Russian accent, it kind of sounds like she's not, you know, from another planet, from another country and it it works really well. And then she did that and it came off so cute and good that I said, well, why don't you sing on a bunch of these songs? So we sort of cleared off a lot of my vocals and made room for this female vocalist. And it turns out to be this album called Candy Now. And Candy Now is this you know, kind of a Americana record, but with me and this Russian female singer. Uh, and now we're resurrecting Candy now, but in a different form and sort of tracks that I'm doing with a guy named named Andy, who I call Andy now, but Andy Carpenter. You know, he makes these great tracks. He's an Orange County producer guy, sort of modern tracks, but with lots of full retro feel to them. And then we got the singer from the Bell Rays, Lisa K. comes sing on those. So anytime I do something with female vocal, I kind of call it Candy Now. And, and uh, I like to work with female vocalists. So I find they do a lot of things that I'm totally incapable of. And it gives me a whole different place to go with the songs that I write and the things that I produce. So I really, that that's come to be something I really enjoy is working with female acts when I get a chance, you know, because it's so different that the
0: timbre of their vocal comes off so differently. For sure. You, now, Radio Free Dwarves, I honestly have never heard that record. Yeah, okay. Is that?
2: So that's fun. With a band like mine that's been around this long, there's always something you can find that's like, oh, this surprised me or this is right. different. Yeah. So with Radio Free Dwarves, it's basically uh, a couple live in the studio recordings, you know, uh, from. from you know, European radio shows. So, oh, okay. like, uh, um, what what you get are, like, in a way, it's kind of similar to How to Win Friends and Influence People. There's not a lot of overdubs. It's very straightforward. Kind of like how the band would play these songs live if you just knocked them out. So a lot of people kind of like those versions, you know, um, because they're more, they feel more alive and they don't feel as there's some people who don't like the whole overdub side of the doors and the whole like produced side of it. And they just feel like that loses the, the essence of the band. Um, and usually those kind of people sort of quit me at blood guts and pussy. Like they like blood guts and everything else. Like fuck it. Maybe they like, thank heaven. And then that's about it. Right. But I would say even to those people, if you go and listen to radio free, it's like, that's the band.
0: If you like this band, it's pretty straightforward, it's pretty fast, and it's pretty live, so there it is. Yeah. Now I so. I got I gotta confess something, okay? And this is this is pretty awesome, okay. When I saw that you released Take Back the Night, I was like, okay, their tank is run out. They there's nothing there's no way that this band can impress me any more than they already have. And when I heard this fucking record, my fucking skull popped off and I was like, God damn. Every fucking album just gets better and better. I was blown away when I first heard it. The production and the, the songwriting was just... City by the Bay had my skull out. I was like, the, the lyrics all about it. I was like, dude, this is so needs to be done right now. And I'm glad that you guys of all bands would do something like this. And the, the whole concept of the record is just, it's just another hard-hitting rock and roll album with so many cool things on it and it just blew my mind I loved it and we, we already talked about here's looking at you but uh, City by the Bay the lyrics are just hilarious I, I was on the floor when I read that <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow well I really appreciate all those sentiments I mean that's when I look at other punk bands you know often I'll see like they were inspired in the 80s or the 90s they had a good run of a couple records and then everything that comes after is just sort of a bad variation on that or an attempt to kind of soften up from that or whatever. Right. And that's kind of where you're stuck with most punk bands, which is why people are kind of unsatisfied with the shows and with the records and the whole genre, you know, and that, and, and you could say that about a lot of things you could say that about garage music or reggae music or surf music or whatever. You know, there's this period when things are kind of intense and people are doing it. And that period ends, and then you just kind of get the oldies show. Mm-hmm. And that was the one thing that I just never wanted to do. You know, I always felt like hardcore punk and just rock and roll in general is, is for young people. And I always wanted to make a record that would excite somebody who's young. I don't try and pretend that I'm still 15, but I try and make a record that would turn you on if you were 15, you know? And I think most people don't do that. And I think the reason they don't do it is because, in a way, it kind of. Maybe it feels insincere to them. You know, they feel like, well, I'm 50 now, so I'm going to make a record where you, when you're 50, right. you know? But I, I, I don't look at it that way. I look at it like genre. It's like, I'll make, I'm making a record that can fucking get a hyperactive 15-year-old on drugs out of their fucking feet and going, oh, shit, you right. know? I mean, that you know, that's not easy to do when you're in your 50s, you yeah. know? Um, uh, I might need to take some naps while I'm doing it, but I can still do it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, take that. So that's sort of, you know, I I I was never trying to make to be real or be sincere or be myself. That's what a lot of people try and do. I try and make great art, right? That's what I try. So so I'm glad when people like you recognize that. Yeah. We don't just slack off to a record, or just let this one go, or just go, okay, that one's not, this one ain't so important, we're done. And that's what a lot of bands do now. A lot of it comes down to money. They're not willing to spend money on their heart. They go, fuck, man, in the 80s, somebody gave me 100 grand, I made a record for 20 grand, kept the rest and bought a house, fuck it. It's like, well, nobody's giving you that 100 grand anymore. If you want your record to sound good, you're going to have to put something into it or be really ingenious and figure out how to get brilliant people to do shit for really cheap. Right. So I do both, right? Absolutely. I get, I get people like Josh Reese or Eric Valentine or San Quinn or whoever to come in on my record just because they think I'm cool. And I fucking give them a couple bucks and I keep it quick and fun, and that's it. And they're like, yeah, I had fun. I made a record with that guy. And, and- then... I, you know, but I keep spending money and taking time and taking forever to make a great record. And so when when Take Back the Night came out, it was like, oh, this sounds great. Oh, this is cool. Oh, this is raucous and fun, but it's also innovating, you know? And the thing that's really come up over these last two records, Take Back the Night and Invented, is just how great the band is. Yep. How great all those other guys who aren't me are because they wrote these last two records. I mean, I, I, like, my share of the writing went down considerably on both these records. On Take Back the Night and Inventive, it. it's like, yeah, it's still me producing, and it's still me, you know, writing my share of songs, but these guys are writing like demons. And, and now there's so many guys who've been in the band. you got, you know, Salt Peter and He Who, from the old days, but then you've also got Fresh Prince of Darkness, Nick Oliveri, right? Rick that wrecked everything. And, and Josh Freeze from now. So so you've got, you know, six, seven strong songwriters on the fucking record. Are uh, guys who used to play with us and guys who do play with us. So so it's like it it you know, these last few years have really been a period where I really realized You know, it doesn't matter that I'm the leader of it or the voice of it or whatever. This is a band. This is a band full of really good players, and these guys are great. And you don't take anybody in the fucking dwarves for granted because they're all fucking
0: absolutely.
2: And and so, you know, the, the level of songwriting on these last on Dwarf Invented and Take Back Night doesn't waver. It's super strong because it's the best song that these good songwriters wrote, you know? And for me, I kind of supplied the bubblegum songs on the last couple records. Right. So all the shit like Sluts in the USA or, or uh, you know, uh, uh, Trace Amounts of Cocaine or Julio is the stuff that I wrote or, or you know, Saul Peter, he writes, you know, more bubblegum stuff, trailer, trash, or whatever. Then you got, like, Fresh Prince of Darkness, that, uh, um, Josh Freeze and, and, uh, and Nick get together. They make the most, like, fire-breathing hardcore band in the world. Yep. So, they wrote a bunch of specifically hardcore songs. You know, for Josh Freeze it's like, he doesn't want to do poppy shit with me. He wants to do some nasty nastiest shit. So, it's like, all right, write some nasty shit. And then he turns around, and with that song, Everything and More, he actually wrote about guys in the doors, wrecks Everything and Badge Moore, right. and writing about the stories that we've told him. So again, it's such a meta thing. Everything fishtails back on itself. Now you've got Josh is who's this like session hero guy playing on Miley Cyrus records and, and you know Michael Buble records, and he turns around and goes, I'm going to celebrate the hardcore of the Dwarves. And he plays (laughs) hardcore drums and sings about, you know, like I sing it, but he writes these lyrics about my drummer and my bass player and these other guys. And then they come in, and then Nick goes, well, okay, I'll do this. And Badge Moore comes in and goes, well, I'll do this, you know. So it, it just never ends, you know. It's the Dwarves. My job is just tying together all these brilliant people and the cool things that they do and they count on me to do that and there's nobody going you know it, um, like in a lot of bands guys fight and they go well well I want to do it this way well I want to do it that way but in my, in my band everybody does everything they want to do and then it's just my job to tie it together right you know
0: and you know one person we so have not mentioned was bad. one person we've left out is holy smokes
2: well he really introduced that whole element I mean, Holy Smokes first comes in on Young and Good Looking, which is our most popular record. I think he's one of the reasons. And he sort of introduces the guitar playing style, you know, the heavy metal guitar playing style of the Dwarves, and Fresh Prince of Darkness has carried that on. All of the records before Young and Good Looking only have the Ramon style of guitar, the the He Who Cannot Be Named Ramon style. You know, it's sort of like a combination of those big plodding riffs with like really straightforward Ramones from it. You know, that's the only way he plays. And once Holy Smokes comes in and you get young and good looking, this new element gets introduced of heavy metal guitar, where he, you know, so if you take a song like Everybody's Girl, if you play that who style, it's just straight remote. As soon as you introduce Holy Smokes, it's which, which most people don't do, I mean, you were talking about how you instantly know it's a Dwarf's punk song. That's one of the ways. We're we're one of the only punk songs that has heavy metal rhythm guitar. You have to have a certain amount of chops to be able to play that. A lot of guys in punk bands, you know, they got a good heart, and they know a cool chord progression, but they don't have the chops to play that. You know, they can't play that heavy metal You've got to be really good to do that. And Holy Smokes introduced that as, as well as the sort of surf element in songs like Demonica, where again, I mean, he wrote the chords to Demonica. So it's very much set up so he can come in with his surf style. And so that, that surf element of, of Holy Smokes is very real. And that's an element that gets introduced in sort of the epitaph years and, the, you know, you're looking and. Come clean, you know. Yeah, remember, that's sort of his role.
0: I remember Holy Smokes used to play in the drunk engines as well. I saw them live a couple times. They're awesome.
2: Right. I mean, he has that pedigree of coming from those like California pool skater, hardcore punk, you know, sort of hardcore punk mixed with like Ted Nugent rock and roll. That's that incredible. You know you know and and it's it's a california influence and i think california people can hear it and feel it sure and you know fresh friends of darkness is also from california and so you get that element it's become an indispensable element that california element of the doors which i'm from illinois but i didn't bring that you know right but i would but i was again my job is to recognize it and then in
0: Introducing it to my project, you know, you've done a good job at that for sure. So, uh, what do you got for the future?
2: Well, the big thing now is, you know, I, I wrote another book, a follow-up to my book, Nina, I put out a book called Nina about 15 years ago. And, and this is the follow-up called Highland Falls. Um, and then musically, you know, making the Black solo record. So this is this is. I'm not really concentrating on the group thing at the moment. I think it's a good time not to because of the You can't really hang out with people now, and you can't play shows. Right. And so I'm just doing, trying to come up with. You know what'll be the Black solo record and the, and the book. You know, and that's kind of sure. After that, I'll be pretty sick and tired of myself and. I'll want to reach out to my friends and, and do the dwarves again and start playing that, you know?
0: Okay. Where, where can we find your book at?
2: Wow. Well, let's hope you can find it in bookstores. I mean, with the last couple, <laughs> and I have two books, right? One's called arms to the teeth with lipstick, which was illustrated by the late, great Mad Mark Rude, who was nice. A punk rock icon. You can do a whole show on him. I'm yep, sure. Absolutely. But, um, you know, I did a book with him that was very surreal, and then I did a book, my last book, that was just a straight-up novel that was very minimalistic and I think readable and funny, and that was called Mina. So this was the follow-up to that, it's called Highland Falls. You know, what can I say, man, it's a novel, it's fiction, it it, it, it has a musical element in, in it, which none of my other stuff did as much. Mm-hmm. I always used phrases from music and, and lyrics, but I never really had a music musician as a character, so in this novel it's the first time that I've really done that and introduced a band element. But of course, you know, it's very unlock them unmercifully. You know, it, to me, rock and roll is something to be mocked, and and you know, I take it very seriously, but I don't take myself seriously, and I don't take the people who play rock and roll very seriously. You know, I take the art form seriously, but but if you make that kind of music, you have to take the piss out of it so there's a lot of that with this book but but mainly it's just about you know that same female character nina young woman and the way she runs roughshod over society you know and i i really i wanted to write a female character that was very anarchistic and wild and, and so that's sort of what my character that i write is you know but but there's this band element in this so i think Highland Falls is going
0: to be an interesting book and people are going to like it, you know. Fuck yeah. Well, that pretty much wraps it up. Thanks for coming on the Jeff Salgado Show, Blag. We really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, well, you know, send me a link, man. I'll check it out. Send me uh, a recording of the show if you got it. I'd I'd, I'd love to uh, get a, you know, hang on
0: to it. Yeah, we'll send you everything for sure. So, um... In closing, thanks for coming on the show, everybody. Black Dahlia, thank you very much.
2: Yeah, man, you gotta check out the motherfucking dwarves, thedwarves.com. That's where the shit's happening. Buy <laughs> yeah. my shit, make me rich. Rock <laughs> legend, Black the <and> Ripper, <laughs> big dick swinging.
0: Fuck yeah! Take it easy. Have a good one. That was a great interview. That was a great outro to that interview. Fuck yeah! He is the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> I am so happy. I got that guy on my show. I'm so stoked. I'm a fucking huge fanboy. I uh, uh, I can tell, man. You you're definitely you're on a high right now. Dude, the Dwarves. I mean, if if you were to take all the psychosomatic from the 90s and say who the influences before we moved to Sacramento, it's like Dwarves, Zeke, Super Suckers. That was our shit. That's a good trio. Absolutely. So that's, you know, for me, I mean, that's like dude, that's like yeah. almost like you know if I got to like interview Lemmy or something like that, I'm I really know. stoked. So, personally, for me, I was, I'm really excited. But, uh, what do you think, Mike? I loved it. I mean, I think uh, one of the things
1: that resonated with me with this interview the most was wh- how he was talking about how, yeah, the Dwarves are a punk rock band, but especially, I think he touched a little bit on like how today's punk rock they might not fit in, but they just don't give a shit. He's just going to keep doing his own thing alongside of that. And just keep being the dwarves instead of dealing
0: with, I would. This is say it. The more fucking new censored punk rock. Well, he, I mean, they have always been... I mean, that's what real punk rock was, even exactly. in the 70s. Like, when it was a total rebellion of everything, and somehow it got formulated into this, like, mold. And they have never been part of the mold. And if you think about the dwarves, they've never been part of their own mold. They have a style, but they'll do anything. They'll always throw you curveballs on every record.
1: Exactly. And that's... That means the world to me because I mean, coming from someone that doesn't really want to censor themselves either, it's just nice to know that they're still they're still kinda of like that attitude of I w- I won't say like it would not anything goes or anything like that, but
0: anything goes. Well it's I mean it's yeah. all tongue in cheek. Exactly. Like all don't it take is. it so fucking serious. It's it's all humorous, it's all meant to be sarcastic, but like I said in the interview, you have rich leaders, quote unquote. You know, being a, being right? charged with these crimes and these offenses, and you got punk rock bands that are singing about them, and the punk rock bands are the ones that are attacked. You know what? Yeah. Fuck you.
1: Yeah, it's like why is why is this dude who's not reaching nearly as many
0: people as you getting the heat for it? Right. But you're out there actually fucking doing it. Exactly, and that's that's why I'm just kind of really excited to have him on there. I've been a huge fan forever. I wish blag the best of luck and everything he does and everybody in that band as well so i couldn't be more happy but that concludes our interview and our show thank you guys all for listening like share and subscribe follow or whatever you got to do on whatever podcast app you guys use we really appreciate the support so as Blag would say you all gotta burn have a good night take it easy